It's good to see an old friend. Haven't seen you in a while. I don't really like you. Okay. <clears throat> We're past that. If you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to finish uh, chapter 9 and do chapter 10 this morning. As you're turning there, I want you just to begin to think a little bit about a story um, that I'm going to begin but not end right now. Imagine that you are in a foreign country, Central American country, and that you have been persuaded to be there by a friend. In actuality, you have been fairly tricked to be there by a friend. And you have been, while you are there, gathering information through a land survey so that others may come in later to build a school, a church, and now you are gathering information to build a bridge. And you stand on the edge of a cliff that drops about 150 feet more or less straight down. And you're standing on the cliff and you're like, what are we doing here? And your friend, who by the way has tricked you into being in this place at this time, comes to you with a half inch rope and three men that are no bigger than my wife and says to you, I want you to tie this rope around your waist and these three men are going to lower you over the edge of this cliff so that we can gather the data we need so we can build the bridge. What are your thoughts in that moment? Pause. We'll come back to that in a moment. Nehemiah chapter 9 picks up this morning with where we left off. Last time you'll remember, or over the course of these last few chapters, we have been dealing with Nehemiah in the sense of a renewal of the covenant. Nehemiah is not primarily a story, it's not primarily an account, a historical account about a building project. It is the account of the return of God's people to their God. It is a recount of a renewing of a relationship, of God-centered community. And so we continue that on, we continue on with that here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. And so we are going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we are going to skip over to Nehemiah chapter 10. And I'll tell you where that's at here in a moment, and we'll pick that up. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. If you would stand with me this morning that we may honor the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let, us, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. 
even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich, rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On sealed document, on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then as we begin chapter 10, you see those names listed. Skip down with me to verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, the nobles, and the enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exact exaction of every debt we will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread the regular grain offering the regular burnt offering the sabbath the new moons the appointed feast the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at, a, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. We also, also to bring to the house of our God to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree and wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes from all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and with the Levites, when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the tithes of the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning much in the same way that the people of Israel gathered before you so long ago. That the people of Israel gathered before you in this, these chapters of Nehemiah or desiring to have a relationship with you. Desiring to know you. Desiring to live differently so that you may be glorified. Glorified. 
Lord, we pray this morning that we would be able to hear your voice. That we would be able to hear your word without any distraction. Lord, that we, then we would be able to respond to it. That it may change us. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. As we continue on with Nehemiah, uh, we continue on with chapter 9. And chapter 9 is a continuation of what we talked about last week. We focused very specifically last yesterday, uh, sorry, last week, sorry, I got distracted by cuteness over here. Um, but yesterday we, uh, yesterday, I am going to screw that up all day. Last Sunday, we looked at confession very specifically, and we talked about the need for us as believers to continue to confess and to repent as time goes on. That it, yes, we confess and repent at the moment of our salvation, at the moment of justification, but we know that as long as we are in this body, we are still sinful, and we still have a need to confess, and so we talked about that in, in great detail last time, and chapter 9 continues that idea of confession as you read through that whole list. It also, beginning in verse 6, which we did not read together, but in beginning in verse 6, we have a history of the covenant. So we start with confession in chapter 9, then we move to a history of the covenant. This covenant is the covenant that was given between God and his people, specifically through Abraham and Moses. It was a covenant that said, in essence, if we boil it down, that as long as Israel would obey God, as long as Israel would continue to follow God with their lives, that he would bless them. And many of those blessings were, were of an earthly manner. They were things like, we, I will give you rain when it's supposed to rain. I will give you a harvest when it's supposed to have harvest. Your livestock will produce the way that they're supposed to. And your name, the name of Israel, will be glorified among the nations because of what I do. And so we have a history of this covenant from the moment of creation all the way through the very moment of their disobedience that led to the exile, which they just now are returning from. Throughout chapter 9, though, what we see in, great, in detail is a picture of God's faithfulness versus Israel's adultery. Throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, it's made very clear that the, the relationship that we have with God can be compared to that of a relationship between a husband and a wife. And throughout chapter 9, you see God as the faithful husband. He is consistently watching over Israel. He's providing for Israel. He's protecting Israel. He's loving Israel. He's being patient with Israel. He is serving Israel. And what we see in turn is not the return love of Israel, but rather we see Israel portrayed as an adulterous people that continually walk away. The great uh, condemnation of the book of Joshua is that they did what was right in their own eyes. That's the great condemnation. That they saw life and they lived it as they wanted to rather than as God had instructed them to. 
They, rather than desiring their husband, so to speak, rather than desiring the one that loved them, the one that had blessed them, the one that had done everything for them, rather they had chased after short-term gain. They had chased after short-term pleasure. They had chased after other gods. They had chased after other people because they thought it would benefit them in the moment, failing to realize what would benefit them for a lifetime. And they come to the end of that, that history here in chapter 32. Notice with me what they say in verse 33. They, they talk about the great discipline, the great judgment that God has brought upon them through the kings of Assyria and Babylon and now Persia. And they say in verse 33, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you dealt faithfully and and we have acted wickedly. Back up to verse 30 just for a moment. It says, For many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God." As Israel stood here making confession that they were adulterers, that they had walked away from the great and loving God, they understood that the consequence should have been death. Get that, get that for just a moment. They call him gracious and merciful for sending them into exile instead of ending them. They call him righteous in how he dealt with them. I was reading this last week, which I have been doing so much more than normal. Um, But I was reading a book this week, and one of the quotes in one of the books, I've lost track of which one and where, said this comment, and it kind of took me a moment to wrap my brain fully around it. He said, one of the great blessings, one of the great mysteries of God and his dealings with us is that he waits for his judgment until the end of time. That he waits for the full, his full wrath, his full righteous judgment till the end of time. But we experience his mercy and his grace now. That's what Israel say. Israel say, we know we deserve judgment. We know that we deserve punishment. We know that we were the ones that had done wrong. And yet you were gracious and mercy even in the exile. And so as they looked at this. And they, they understood who they served. They go on though. And they realize something else. That it wasn't just the people of the past. Who had made the mistake. They realized that they themselves had sin in their lives. And they understood that they still bore the consequences of that. They say, behold, in verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. They say, we're we're still trapped. We're still in sin. And this is why at the end of the chapter, they desire to be in covenant. They understand in their slavery that they are in need of a Savior. They are in need of someone to free them from the bondage that they find themselves in. And they know the only one that can accomplish that is the one that put them in the slavery as discipline. It is God alone who can free them. 
It's not some wall. That wall that they had just built in 52 days was worthless without a God-centered community. They understood their sin. They understood the justice and the righteousness of God. They understood their desire, or their not their desire, they understood their need for a Savior, and they desired a relationship with Him, which leads us to chapter 10. They gather together as a people to enter back into relationship. A quick note on that that is not in your notes, but we as believers, and even even in the Old Testament, our belief and our faith with God is an individual thing. We understand that. We have our own individual responsibilities. But it always takes place in the context of a community. There are no such things as lone ranger Christians. There is no such thing as a hermit on the side of a mountain that is living the Bible the way that it's meant to be. Rather, we are made for community and we interact with God in community. They come together in great need of salvation. They come together as a people desiring community with God and with each other. All right, that's enough on that. So we come to chapter 10, and they desire covenant renewal. We see there in verse 38 at the end of chapter 9, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then we see the list there. They desire covenant renewal. What do we mean by that? They desire a relationship. A covenant was a, was a relationship agreement. Between two parties, like we talked earlier, it's uh, uh, the, probably one of the best examples that we can give that we understand is between a husband and a wife. You have two parties coming together saying we are going to live with one another and each has its own set of responsibilities. In the, at the very core of this is the covenant that was made between God and the people through Moses on Mount Sinai as the law was codified, as it was written down, and they were given instructions and everything that's recorded in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Ultimately, that was the covenant that they were coming back to. That is what they were agreeing to was that list, that, that set of laws, that set of guidance uh, that they may live life by understanding as well that God has the other side of the covenant, that He again, if, if you will obey these things, if you will follow me, if you will worship me as, as God alone, then I will bless. That's, that's what they're entering back into. Who was entering into it? It was all who had knowledge and understanding. You know, as we read through this list of names, I, I couldn't help but think of the Declaration of Independence. You have this great document that speaks these great truths, and as that's happening, you have individuals who are signing their name to the bottom, but they are not signing their name representing just themselves. They understand that they are signing on behalf of others. They're signing on behalf of families. They're signing on behalf of communities. They're signing on behalf of villages. That this is what we as a people agree to do. All who had knowledge and understanding. Every child that was of age to understand what was being taught to them and to be able to respond. I think there's a good side note here about salvation and and the need for us to make our own decisions and this is why we don't baptize young children, but I'm not going to go into that because that's a thing for another day. But all who had knowledge and understanding were agreeing to this. Lastly, we see in chapter 10 not only their desire for covenant and their need for covenant, 
and what they were agreeing to, but we also see some specific covenant responsibilities. It's interesting, here at the, chapter, at the end of chapter 10, they agree to some very specific things. And it had to do with the issues of the day. They were, they were pointing out these specific things because these were the major sins of the people of Israel in this moment. They weren't better than the other commandments. They weren't more important than other commandments. But they were what they were dealing with in the moment. And so we see four things... We see four things, um, and this is not in, on your notes on the PowerPoint, but four things that they agree to as covenant responsibilities on their side. First, we see the keeping of the law. You see there at the begin or in the middle of what we read uh, there in chapter 10 and verse 29, it says that we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. Okay, so they are agreeing we're going to keep the whole law. We're going to keep everything that was commanded to Moses. That was the first agreement. The second was that there would be no intermarriage. They would not marry people from other, uh, other people groups, other races that were surrounding them. I am not going to go very far down this path because we are going to deal with this issue more in chapter 13. But let me say this. This this commandment and this promise to keep this commandment has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with faith and devotion to God. When God makes this commandment in the, in the covenant, His concern is not race between race. His concern is faith because He knows that when we marry those that are not like-minded, we are the ones that drift away from Him. Very rarely does it go the other direction. As one of my youth ministers put it so plainly, it's easy to pull someone off a chair. It's much more difficult to pull someone onto a chair. And the great example in the, New, or in the Old Testament, of course, is Solomon. Solomon starts out as a great king. He's faithful to the Lord. He chases after the Lord. He builds the temple. But by the end of his life, he has desired other things. He's beginning to marry all of these women from different places. And what do we see at the end of his reign but Solomon sitting and he is surrounded by idols. He's surrounded by idol worship in his land because he has allowed the one who he has married to set the course. This is why it's so important for us to heed the words of Paul when he says, do not be unequally yoked. It's why the second prayer uh, that I pray over my daughter, the first being that she would know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, the second prayer is that she would meet a godly young man who believes in the true gospel. That's why parents, we must be diligent to pray the same over our children and to set that expectation. I'm thinking about Micah and when he first came to me and said that he was dating a girl and that they were getting, they were getting engaged. What was my first question, Micah? Is she a believer? And my second, and he said yes. And I said, then I don't care about the rest. And I do care about the rest. But that was... That was my only desire for him. Is that she was a believer. That she would love him as Christ loves the church. Because she understands that love. That should be what we're teaching our children. It should be what we're reminding ourselves. If you are single and you're like me and you're 30 something and you're still single. It should be still the, the priority that we place in any relationship that we have. That we not be unequally yoked, but rather that we marry like-minded. All right, that's 
farther than I really intended to preach on that, but you'll hear it again in a couple weeks. Number three, they promise to keep the Sabbath. They promise to keep the Sabbath. If others came and offered to sell grain, they, they were going to say, no, we can't do that today. This was important. This was something that they had not been doing. And yet, the Sabbath was a distinctive component of Israel. This was one of the things that set them apart. How do we know Chick-fil-A is a Christian business? They're not open on Sundays. They even have to put it on the exit signs. Hey, we're not open on Sunday because otherwise they get angry people that take the exit, go to Chick-fil-A, and then realize they've just wasted their time. It's a component. Now, we can have the discussion whether the Sabbath pertains to Christians or not another day. But this was a sign of who they served, that they were different. They had not been doing that. They had not been setting themselves apart. And so now they make the covenant. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to keep the holy days. We're going to keep the year of Jubilee. We're going to make sure that people know that we're different. And then lastly, we see them make several promises to support the ministry of the temple. We see them make several promises to support the ministry of the temple. They simply say, we're going to provide. We're going to provide for the people that serve at the temple. We're going to provide for the sacrifices that need to be made at the temple. We're going to make sure that the temple has all it needs to, to do all that it's supposed to do. And they, they spend a great deal of time of talking about what that looks like. They understood that this covenant wasn't a one-way relationship. That they weren't going to just stand before a holy and just God and say, bless us, we're yours. They stood before a holy and just God and said, we understand that a covenant means we have responsibilities as well. You know, we read these two chapters and we hear about covenant and we hear about relationship and, and we see the different things that they're promising and the th- different things that they're confessing to. And it's easy for us to read these chapters and say, okay, that's great for them. I'm happy that Israel's coming back. I'm happy that they're making these promises. And I'm, it's, that's great. But we need to remember, as we talked about two weeks ago, that we ourselves are in a new covenant. That Christ instituted with his death a new covenant, a better covenant. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, The writer of Hebrews talks about this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then he quotes a prophecy of Jeremiah's that there would be a new covenant and what those promises look like. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the promises of the old covenant had to deal with blessings that were earthly, you know, the bringing of the rain, the producing of livestock and the harvest. The promises of the new covenant have to deal with the indwelling of God and his people and the access that people would have to their God. They were eternal promises. You know, the new covenant that we enter to is better, as the writer of Hebrews says, in part because the new covenant has the power to save. It has the power to save, or is with the power to save. 
You know, we look at the old covenant, and it says that it had fault. If you read, I don't, your translation may, translation may say a different word, but it says there that the covenant was fault, had fault, or it was found fault with fault. It's not that the covenant was bad. It's not that the covenant was evil. It's that the covenant had fault because it was incomplete. You've got to understand that the old covenant was carried out by priests that had sin. They themselves had sin. They themselves were not perfect. Therefore, how could they go before a perfect God except for with sacrifice? The sacrifices that were made were incomplete. They were animals that had no choice in the matter. And their blood was not enough to cover the sins of men for eternity. The promises were incomplete. They were earthly promises, not eternal ones. But now we have a new covenant that is better because it is complete. Because in the new covenant, the one who carries out the covenant is God Himself sinless and perfect, not needing to have justification for himself. It is based on a better sacrifice. No longer is it a sacrifice of animals that have no idea what's going on, but rather there was the sacrifice of God himself as he lived a perfect life in human form and then gave himself as an offering with full knowledge of what was happening being able to pay for the sins of all of mankind for all of eternity, and then being able to pick his life back up again in the resurrection, defeating death and sin for us forever. There was no amen. I might as well be preaching to a camera. Defeating death and sin forever. There we go. Let him hear it on the camera. Amen. He is... this covenant is a better covenant that we have. And part of it is also a better covenant because it is based entirely on our faith faith in the faithfulness of God. The old covenant was in in much about the works of man. The old covenant was, hey, you got to keep this commandment and this commandment and this commandment. Don't do this. Do do that. Make sure you make this sacrifice. Make sure you don't make that sacrifice. And as Paul says in Romans, all that did was show us as humans that we can't keep commandments. It reminded us daily that we were going to fail at this. But now, no longer is our salvation, no longer is our, is our part of the covenant based on works, but rather it is based in our faith and our trust in that God is faithful. That when He says, I will save you, that He will do just that. When He says, I have done this for you, that He has in, in, in truth done what He has said He's done. That when He says, I am going to make a place for you, to prepare a place for you, that that is truly what is happening, and that one day we will know a redeemed body and a redeemed creation for the rest of eternity in the presence of God. Amen. Based entirely, and so we now just have to put faith in Him. We, We believe that He is our Savior and our Lord. Here's the thing, though, and he, as you go on with Hebrews, this is what you're going to understand. That faith produces fruit. No longer do we have responsibilities in the terms, as, as my brother put so well this morning, no longer do we serve God out of a sense of, of duty or out of a sense of obligation because we can't pay it back. But rather, we... We desire to, or we produce fruit and we do actions because the Spirit 
inside of us prompts us to do that. And now God, the indwelling of God leads us to do those things. Faith means action. Let me return to our story that I told you at the beginning. You're standing on the edge of a cliff. And you have a friend next to you with a half-inch rope and three men who are, there's no way they weigh 100 pounds. And he tells you to wrap the rope around your waist and to trust him. For a moment, just imagine that there are two choices. Uh, obviously, there's a third choice, which is to run. Um, but there are two choices. One, you can say, you know what, I believe you. I believe that you wouldn't drop me. I believe that these men wouldn't drop me. I believe that the rope would hold well. But no thank you. In that moment, what is your true faith in any of those things? What is your true faith in your friend? What is your true faith in that rope? What is your true faith in those gentlemen that are offering to lower you over the edge? I would argue that there is none. There is no faith. You may say, I believe you that it would be fine, but your inaction proves that there is no faith. Your other choice is to very begrudgingly tie the rope around you, hand the other end to three men, and jump. Even though the words out of your mouth may be, this is crazy. Your actions show that there's faith. Faith means action. If one does not act, then it is a clear sign that there is no faith. If you don't believe me, then go read the book of James. Go read 1 John. Faith means action. And if one does not act, then it is a clear sign that there is no faith. Therefore, if one does not have the action, or does not have action to the commands of the Word of God, and thus produce the fruit of the Spirit, then it is a sign that there is no faith. If there is no action on the commands of God, then it is a sign that there is no faith. Brothers and sisters, if we inspect our lives, do we see the Word of God? When we inspect our lives, do we see the Word of God played out in our decisions, in our desires, in our longings, in our dreams? Or do we see the condemnation of Joshua. They did what was right in their own eyes. We have a great new covenant. It is a blessed new covenant that does not require great sacrifice in the terms of daily offerings. We have a great, because we have been given one perfect offering made on behalf of us all. We have a better covenant because it is now mediated, it is now carried out by a high priest that is perfect and allows us, as Hebrews says, to walk into the presence of God with great boldness. We have a better covenant because the sacrifice was perfect. Because the mediator was whole, is holy. Because now we can know God. But a covenant is a relationship. And it's a relationship 
that must be carried out by both parties. Again, we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot repay God for what He has done. But we should desire, we should desire to serve. We should desire to act in light of all that He has said. Which leads us to this end, and, and I'll, we'll get out of here, but three questions as we come to the end of this passage. One, do you see your need? All of chapter 9 is about Israel understanding their need for a Savior. Do you see your need? This morning, is God working on your heart to say, I know that I need a Savior, and I have never done that. I am still under His judgment. Second, have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you placed your faith in Him to say, you are my Savior, I'm putting all my eggs in your basket? Let's go. And then lastly, what do your actions say? What do your actions say? Do you say with your lips that you are a believer? you say with your lips that I love Jesus Christ? you say with your lips that you know Him and yet when you look at your life, you see not the Word of God? You see no markers of a change. You see no markers of a faith. Rather, you are the one that says, no, I believe all of that, but you walk away. It's important that we inspect our lives. It's important that we look to make sure where our faith truly is. This morning, we're not going to have a a typical time of response, but I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And I'm just going to ask that you, where you're at right now, that you just take time to respond. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're in one of our seats this morning. But you take time this morning to respond to the Word of God. We're going to be dismissing by rows. We're going to start at the back and dismiss by rows as we have this time. We're going to give you a little time, but then we'll begin to dismiss. If you need to stay and to deal with God with something, please stay. We're not going to think anything of it. You can stay as long as you like. If you're, but you're free to, to go when we dismiss. We just ask this. Don't leave without listening. Don't leave without taking to account the Word of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your wonderful, glorious love. Your incredible grace and mercy and justice that You hold out at all times to a people that have been disobedient over and over again. We thank You that You are patient with us just as You were patient with the people of Israel. That You hold back Your wrath. That You hold back Your judgment from being poured out in full when we deserve it. Lord, that You have allowed us to experience grace and mercy in this moment. Lord, I pray that we would run to that, that we would rejoice over that, that we would sing praises about that. I pray that as we do that, though, we would understand that this is a covenant based on faith and that faith means action and that our lives should be different. That our decision-making process should be different. That our compassion towards others should be different. That our patience with one another should be different because of what you have done and how you have changed us and made us new creations. Father, we pray all of this in the holy Wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Again this morning, just